0: What an honor it is to be able to kick us off in a series called The Road to Easter. I will make a confession for you. Last September, when our team got away to plan all of 2022, uh, I have never, when I proposed this series to the team, never been more expectant and excited for a series. So when I looked at the calendar, this was going to gear up to be my favorite series that we did this year. And I just believe God is going to meet with us and encounter us and reveal his goodness and glory to us in unique ways. Amen? Church, listen, today is April 3rd, 2022. I want to send some of you on a rabbit trail this afternoon, but that's okay. 1,989 years ago, Jesus died on Golgotha. You say April 3rd? 33? Well, yeah, if you want to go down this rabbit trail, there is an immense body of work that dates the crucifixion to the day you and I are sitting in. And you say, how? Jesus was born without question 5, 6 B.C. I tend to land on the side of 5 B.C. And we know that John the Baptist came into ruling in the 15th year of Tiberius. Tiberius historically came to power in 14 A.D. That puts it John the Baptist's ministry in the fall of 28 A.D. We know Jesus comes into ministry about six months after that. So in the spring of 29 AD, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. At 29 AD, we know throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he had to go through at least three Passovers. Three Passovers takes him into the year beyond 30 AD. Now the way that scholars try to get you to go back to 30 is they say that Caesar Augustus and Tiberius had a co-joint rule, but nothing in history tells us this. So it puts us at about 33 A.D. We know that he was crucified in Passover. Passover is the 15th Nisan. 15th Nisan in the year, if you look at the calendar, of 33 A.D. is April 3rd, 33 A.D. You and I are 1,989 exact years removed from the crucifixion of our Savior. Now, I'm a little bit jazzed up this morning. I'm jazzed up because... I was paid this week to study as many scriptures as I could literally put my hands on about the king we call Jesus. When you study the scriptures and allow the enormity, the enormous reality of those scriptures to really dawn on you, you start walking with a little bit more confidence. Not confidence in yourself, but confidence in Jesus. This series, The Road to Easter, tracks us through four roads. Three of them are up to Easter. One of them is post-Easter. Today is April 3rd, right? We're going to do a message called the Triumphal Entry. Next Sunday, which is Palm Sunday, would technically be the Triumphal Entry, right? That is the Triumphal Entry, but we're doing it this Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be what we call the Road through Gethsemane, Gethsemane, the place of the oil press. On Easter itself, which is the 17th, we're going to look at the Via Dolorosa, Road of Suffering. And then on April 24th, we're going to look at Emmaus Road. Emmaus Road is the road that goes due west of Jerusalem going into the Mediterranean Sea. Now, I would like to show you just a quick image of these roads around Jerusalem. This is Ancient Jerusalem, you'll see at the bottom of your your screen here on the house of Caiaphas, the high priest in the upper room. On the middle of left of the page, you'll see road to Emmaus and Joppa. That's the final road we're going to look at. If you look at the top in the center, you'll see a red dot that says Golgotha. If you go due south of that, all the way down to the bridge, that's the Via della Rosa that Jesus would have walked almost a mile in the time of suffering. Over here on the right, you're going to see a purple temple. And then off to the right is that that Kidron Valley. To the right of that is the Mount of Olives or the Garden of Gethsemane. Today we're going to look at how Jesus enters in the east side of the city in his triumphal entry. Now there's a couple of things that need to be said about the triumphal entry. One being that the gospel writers agree that this is in the final week of Jesus' life. What we call Passion Week, meaning he dies on Friday, he comes into the city on Sunday in his triumphal entry. But what's really, really unique about this is that most of the Gospels spend six or eight chapters in the final week of Jesus' life. I think it's accurate for us to say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are passion narratives with extended introductions. Because really what the Gospels are about are what we're going to talk about for the next four Sundays. This is where the Gospels talk about the creative energy about God's redemptive promise Not only for Israel, but for the whole world. If you have a Bible, go with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. If you want to put a marker, you can put a marker in Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. We're going to look at Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. It's so good to have Aaron Guthrie on stage. He is going to be live painting, as you see now, both in this gathering and the next, and then it will be revealed. He's going to do this prophetic painting all through the month for us. And so, why don't you put your hands together for Aaron and let you know. We appreciate him doing so. I want to tell you, we're going to do some special stuff at the end of this gathering, so stick with me. I I studied as many verses as I could about, again, the King Jesus. And you can't help, but as you read this passage, you can't help, again, to just get confidence And I'm going to read so much scripture in this message. In fact, I'm going to allow the scripture just to speak to you most of the message. If you don't walk out of here in just a little bit with a little swagger in your king, your legs are broken, okay? This is not somebody's opinion. What we're going to read is the infallible, inerrant word of God. And it says so much about our king that should make us step back and go, you got to be kidding me. That's my king? And so we uh, begin in Matthew chapter 21, teaching from the triumphal entry. I want us to look at several different distinctions of Jesus as king. Let's read. So the disciples went, uh, start in verse 1. Yeah, verse 1, that's verse 6. Okay, Uh, let me see the text real quick. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them, he said, and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. Now who's going to respond negatively to that, right? And he will send them at once. This took place, verse 4, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, now quoting Micah, and Zechariah, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey or a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 6, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt. Watch this. And they laid their clothes on them and set him, Jesus, on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road Others cut down branches from the tree, which is also why we know it's spring, and spread them on the road. And the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, that is Christ, all of the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, of Galilee notice that the whole city was moved in this triumphal entry or procession so to speak we see the distinctiveness of Jesus as king what I'd like to do today is look at three distinctives of Jesus as king point number one if you're following of course you can find the message online as well is that Jesus is king of Israel everybody say Israel Jesus is king of Israel. You say, why is this so important? Let me tell you why this is so important, that Jesus is king of Israel. Because, next slide, if Jesus isn't the ruler of his own people, he cannot be the ruler over all people. If Jesus is not the ruler of his own people, he cannot be ruler over all people. What do you mean, Craig? If you go and study all of the messianic prophecies in Scripture, messianic prophecies are prophecies that we find of old that speak to Jesus' fulfillment as the anointed one. The Yeshua HaMashiach, what we also call Christos, the anointed one, the one of whom the Spirit rests. He must be king of Israel to be the Messiah. And if he's not the Messiah, he can't be the Savior of the world. Now, What I found so interesting is that there's two times in the Gospels where Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews. You remember the first one? It's at his birth, Matthew chapter 2. These magi, which are descendants of the wise men from Daniel, Daniel's descendants essentially, these magi are scientists, come from the far east, what we now present day call Iran, but then would have been Babylonia. And they come and they meet with, with Herod and they say, where is this baby Born king of the Jews. And what happens is in that moment they quote Micah chapter 5. And at that question, we're going to, we're going to turn there with me if you want to go ahead and turn in Micah 5. You're, they're going to quote Micah 5. Well, this is what Matthew does as well. By the way, there's four gospel accounts, right? Matthew, what we just read, right? There is Luke chapter 19, there is Mark chapter 11, and there's John chapter 11. All four Gospels agree on the details around the triumphal procession. But in Matthew's Gospel, we see now this quote, this messianic prophecy. Now, let me just define that again. A messianic prophecy means that it's a prophetic word in advance speaking of the coming Messiah. Let's look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'm reading from the New King James. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, capital O, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old. And let me just tell you, let me define for you. I'm not just talking about a couple hundred years old. His going forths are from everlasting. Now, now, so that we don't misinterpret Micah chapter 5, God is making sure that we know he's not just talking about any king that Israel's had. He's not talking about King Saul. He's not talking about King David. He's not talking about any king they've had or any king they're going to have in their monarchy. He is talking about the king of Israel, notice this, who is from eternity. Let me give you another romantic way of saying that. Jesus stepped out of eternity and into human history to specifically be the king of Israel. That's the first time he's called king of the Jews. Now, the second time he's called king of the Jews is is in his trial before Pilate. You remember he's at the Praetorium and he's going through this trial where they're about to release Barabbas. And you know what Pilate asks? Pilate thinks he's powerful, doesn't he? Pilate looks at the Son of God in the face and he says to him, Hey, are you king of the Jews? And I love Jesus' response. You know what he said? He said, It is as you say. It is as you say. Pilate thinking he has all power, right? Even Herod, right? All of these prefects and governors and prime ministers think they have all power. And they ask the Son of God, who they think is in their control. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it is as you say. You know what that means? A proper interpretation of that is, duh, (laughs) Pilate, duh. Right Now remember, what Pilate does is he writes the transcription above Jesus' head. Remember what he does? And it goes above Christ's head and it says, King of the Jews. But do you remember what happened in the Gospels? The scribes and the Pharisees are so mad about that title that they tell Pilate, don't write that. He, he said he was the King of the Jews. We didn't say he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate responds, don't you love this? I think he took a page out of Jesus' book. What I have written... I have written. I think think he realized what just happened when Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Here's what you need to understand before we read Zechariah chapter 9. The Jewish people have been prophetically prepared for the coming of Messiah more than any other people on earth. Now I want you to see something. They are prophetically pre-programmed to be looking for the coming Messiah. Now listen to that. Take that framework and read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Next slide. Rejoice, O people of Zion, holy city. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's coming from the east. This is a triumphal entry. He is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey. He is riding on a donkey's colt. So the question is this. If the Jewish people have been prophetically prepared so well... Why can't they see him? It is true that Jesus checked every box of messianic prophecy. He fulfilled them to a T. Why can't they see it? I would say and propose to us, that's a great question. But let's be really careful how we answer it. Because I hear people who are Christians often answer this foolishly like foolish Gentiles. Okay, And we become very arrogant. It's easy for people to say, well, I know he is king. Why didn't the Jews recognize he was king? Okay? I want to challenge you to not talk like that. That's very unbecoming of a follower of Jesus, especially in the context of Jewish culture. Okay? What do you mean? Jewish people understand that the fortunes of the king and the fortunes of the people are intertwined and in every messianic passage that they have memorized from five years old all point to a conquering king who will lead the people of Israel to be conquerors. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're pre-prophetically programmed to see. Now, let's go back to Micah's passage in Micah chapter 5. Remember, we just read verses 2. Let's read verse 7 through 9. Next slide. Notice what the text says. Then the remnant, this is prophesying of Jesus, left in Israel, will take their place among the nations... They will be like dew sent by the Lord or like rain falling on the grass, which no one can hold back and no one can restrain. The remnant left in Israel will take their place among the nations. They will be like a lion among the animals of the forest, like a strong young lion among flocks of sheep and goats. They will pounce and tear as they go with no rescue in sight. The people of Israel will stand up to their foes and all of their enemies will be wiped out. This is how they're pre-programmed. They're looking for a coming Messiah in which this is the reality. So here's what's so difficult to understand. I try to imagine, if I were a Jewish person and I was not yet a believer in Yeshua, Jesus. If I did not yet believe in Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus as the Messiah. Here's what would be very difficult for me. How could a king who has been prophesied to come as a conqueror, How does that conquering king allow someone else to conquer him by being crucified on a tree? That's That's hard to reconcile. That question stirs up an entire different debate. Pastor Chad brought it up in his exhortation. Has the kingdom of God already come, or is it going to come? Has it already come, or is it coming? I want to say to you, you can today find brilliant theologians on both sides of this issue. It's been debated for 2,000 years. Let me answer the question. Has the kingdom of God come, or is it already or yet to come? Here's the answer. Yes. Yes. The kingdom of God's at hand, but it's within you. Jesus, come on, get your story straight. Is it here, or is it not there? Is it inside of you, or is it outside of you? Is it out there, or is it... Is it coming? The first time, listen to me, you have to process the first coming as well as the second coming. When you start thinking about the kingdom of God, we have to realize the first time Jesus came, he came as a redeeming king. The second time Jesus comes, he will come as a reigning king. The first time Jesus came, He came to set up a spiritual kingdom. Let's do some juxtaposition for a little bit. The first time he comes, he came to set up a spiritual kingdom. The second time he comes, he will come to set up a governmental kingdom where he will rule over the world for a thousand years called the millennial reign. Here's another way to say it. Next slide. The kingdom of God was inaugurated when Jesus came the first time, but it will be consummated when he comes again. Let me say it another way. You ready? A little more romantic. The first time Jesus came to, next slide, to pay for his people, when he comes again, he will conquer and reign over all people with his people. So when we contemplate the king and the kingdom and the triumphal entry, we have to see the first coming with the lens of the second coming. Jesus is king of Israel. Point number two, Jesus is not just king of Israel, Jesus is king of kings. He's king of kings. So when Jesus now comes into the city in this triumphal procession, he is both a national king, that's Israel, and he is the king of all kings. Let's listen to John the Revelator and how he says this on the island of Patmos. Revelation 1 and 5, and from Jesus Christ... He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, Christ was, and the ruler of all the kings. Everybody say, All the kings. He is ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding His blood for us. Jesus Christ is the King and ruler over all the kings and all the presidents, and all the chiefs, and all of the premiers, and all of the governors, and all of the prefects, and all of the prime ministers, for all of time. He is the king of all kings. Is that clear enough? That's a lot of alls, isn't it? And only one Jesus. Jesus. The fact that Jesus is king of kings speaks to his sovereignty. Would you say that word with me? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. Our king is completely and perfectly sovereign. Now what does that word sovereign mean? Can I define it for you? I'm going to give you my little working definition of a sovereignty. Here it is. Next slide. Jesus as the king has the ability to orchestrate his intentions independent of any other human in any place of Authority at any time he wishes in the history of humanity. That's his sovereignty. He has the ability as sovereign king to orchestrate his intentions and desires independent of any other human in any place of authority at any time in history. Listen to the way Jesus talks in Matthew 28 about his sovereignty. I want you all to see, just investigate with me. Does Jesus really aware... That he is sovereign King. Let's just see. And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority, <laughs> all authority." We we jump so quick to the Great Commission, we forget verse eighteen. <laughs> Can we just sit right here for a moment? There is no one. There's not a bit of authority outside of the authority that Jesus holds. That's right. He said, "All authority in heaven." And on earth has been given to me. He understood completely about his sovereignty as king. All authority. All authority that ever has been or ever will be, Jesus said, has been given to me. All of it. That's good news, isn't it? Because things might be shaky right now here, right? Things could be shaky in your life. Things could be shaky in your marriage. Things could be shaky in situations that you are engaged in or shaky at work listen to me listen to me things might be shaky here but things are not shaky around his throne (laughs) there is no shaking around the king of kings throne this morning here's what that means are you ready next slide others might have some power but Jesus has all power Let me say it another way. Others might have some authority, but Jesus has all authority. Let me say it another way. Others might have a say, but Jesus has the final say. He is the one with all authority. All authority in heaven and all authority on earth. Now I want to read you a few passages that tell us he's the king of kings. And see if it doesn't give you a little confidence, alright? I'm just going to read them just as they are in the text. There's so many I could read. I've just kind of, I've kind of narrowed them down today. Let's look first of all at Daniel chapter 2 verse 21. And he, that's the king, changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and he gives knowledge to those who have understanding. This is our king. Let's look at the next one. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. The Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Did you see that? And like the rivers of water, he, the real king, can turn the earthly kings wherever he wishes. He can, he can move their hearts whatever direction he wants to move them. He can harden Pharaoh's heart if he wants to harden Pharaoh's heart. He can do what he wants to do. He, literally, the king's heart is in the hand of the King of kings. Let's look at Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. <laughs> I love when the Lord talks like that. I love when He talks like that. Whatever He wants to do, He does. Whatever pleases Him, He does. Where at? Where, where can He do it, Craig? In heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deep places. Whatever he wants to do, he does. He is the king of all kings. Let me say it this way. There is nowhere where Jesus is unable to do what he wants. So no matter what your situation look like, no matter where you come from, no matter what it appears on the outside, he is the sovereign king who is containing all power. Let's look at one more, Isaiah chapter 14. What's this one? Verse 24 through 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn. (laughs) As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, the Lord says. I will break the Assyrian in my land. And on my mountains I will trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. Next slide. The Lord of hosts has sworn. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand, my hand, that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul it? When the Lord King Jesus purposes something, no one shall stand up against it. Folks, you're going to have to get with me this morning, okay? You're going to have to come and join me in my study this week. When the Lord has purposed something, Who can annoy it? I don't know what has gotten into us as Christians of us playing it safe in our world. As if our God is held hostage to a a world that has gone mad. When the Lord purposes something, come on, who's going to step up to the plate and annoy it, he said. Who's going to undo what I've done? Who is going to stand up against the Lord of hosts? What are we playing it safe for as believers? Why are we on our heels? He goes on and says, for the Lord has purposed it. His hand is stretched out. Watch this. And who is going to turn it back? Our king is the king of all kings. Amen. All authority. Every earthly king has is on loan from Jesus. It's on loan. Because all authority is Hid. Let me read Revelation 19. This is what Jesus looks like right now while we're seated here. And I saw heaven opened. Go back to verse 11. Do you get verse 11? Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. Out of all names Jesus could put pick, he wants to be faithful to you and true to you. Wow. For he judges fairly and he wages a righteous war. His eyes are like flames of fire and on his head are many crowns. A name was written on this lamb that no one could understand. understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. And it's not other people's blood. It's his own. He wore a robe dipped in his blood, and his title was the Word of God. (laughs) Look at this next text. John then looks up. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him. That's us. That's you and me. Followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the almighty like juice flowing from a wine press, and on his robe at his thigh was written the title. This is not a tattoo on his quadricep, okay? This is on the edge of his garment. A title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Now, I want you to see something. We notice when Jesus is involved in this triumphal procession the bible and the text tells us it begins at bethany let me show you a couple pictures watch this real quick today next slide today is the triumphal entry i'm standing here on the mount of olives which is really not like a glacial mountain it's like 300 feet above what is below you right there is the kidron valley to your right just off the screen is the garden of gethsemane that there is the dome of the rock where the muslims obviously of course have bought the temple mount okay This is where Jesus would have stopped in his overlook and wept over Jerusalem because he was like a mother hen wanting to pull her in and she would not have it, right? This is where he would have... I'm standing in Bethany right now, okay? This is where Jesus spent a lot of time. This is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Jesus never wanted to stay in the city. Too much vitriol and violence, so he stayed just off the the eastern side of the city. Next slide. Next week, Pastor Chad's going to preach to you about the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Gethsemane. Some of the olive trees are still there to this day. I mean, 2,000 years old. This is where Jesus would be uh, before the Father in prayer. The next week on Easter is the Via Della Rosa. Next slide. You see me standing. You see Via Della Rosa at the top. This is the place that Jesus would have walked to Golgotha. And then finally, the fourth week, the week after Easter, Pastor Chad's going to preach on the Emmaus Road. This is Emmaus Road. This is a very historic road that people still walk to this day. When I was in Israel, I want to show you a couple of things. Me standing on Bethany overlooking, and I want you to see what the Muslims have done today to the eastern wall, where Jesus would have gone in on triumphal entry and where he's also going to come when he comes back. And, and you'll, you'll see, all right? Watch what happens. Watch this quick video. All right, we're here standing on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Starting the old the city top. of David. Right behind me, Dome of the Rock, obviously the temple, first and second temple. You see right here on the eastern gate, the Damascus gate, where you come in, Jesus actually makes us interested in the city. Now the behind us. With the upper room, you have David's temple or David's palace in the time of the, the monarchy. And then also come over here. You can see the place where Jesus over, overlooked the city and wept. And then down in Garden of Gethsemane. You can talk about Look at the eastern wall. They've taken the two arches and filled it in with concrete because they think it's going to stop the Messiah from entering into the holy city. I'm standing in Garden of Gethsemane right now taking a picture i know i i don't know i don't i know that seems somewhat I, I don't yeah you just interpret it what it will but when jesus comes and splits the mount of olives i don't think concrete's going to block him okay i don't think his triumphal entry is going to be blocked but this is where jesus would have come in i'm going to show you a couple more pictures uh just so you get a kind of feel for this go to the next slide this is me standing with the camel on the eats on, on the of bethany i want to show you this because it's going to make sense in just a minute quickly quickly next slide Next slide. This is me standing at Golgotha. The Muslims have bought Golgotha. That's the place of the skull where Jesus historically was crucified, right there at the point. And this, you can see this is two eye sets, why they call it the place of the skull. The Muslims have, have bought that entire piece of property and put their own graveyard on top of Golgotha, the place of Jesus' crucifixion. Next slide. Uh, you'll see this is where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist at the place of the Jordan. Next slide. I actually got baptized there. It's me, one of my old pastors. Next slide. A mentor of mine. I got baptized. Next slide. This is me getting baptized in the Jordan. Many of you have done this as well. Next slide. I'll show you. Oh, I'm sorry. That's good. So you see, you see Jesus. He's coming down from the Mount of Olives or what we call Bethany. Now watch this. The Mount of Olives, as I showed you, is something of a misnomer because there at the top of the Mount of Olives is this village called Bethany. And it looks out across the Kidron Valley down to the city of Jerusalem. I told you Mount of Olives is like 300 feet higher. It's a big, big hill. The Bible says that Jesus' procession starts at Bethany. Watch this. Watch this. Back in 586 B.C., at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonians come in from the east and they sack Jerusalem and carry off the the Israelites with with rings in their noses attached to a, a chain And they literally make them walk the hundreds of miles back, right? And when that happens, when Jerusalem fell in Ezekiel 8, 9, 10, and 11, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, is given this vision where he can see in his mind eye. He sees Jerusalem and the temple. And if you go read this, the Bible says he saw the glory of God rise up from the temple and the glory departed the east side of the city And when it departed the east side of the city, it went up 300 feet up the Mount of Olives. And then the glory of God comes down on the Mount of Olives. Now, when I was in Jerusalem, I spent the most time that I had in my 10-day journey at the Mount of Olives. I went as many times as I could. I hiked up that mountain multiple times and would come. Anytime we had a free time, I'd get up on the Mount of Olives. And one night, I remember standing on the Mount of Olives, and it was nighttime, and so it's dark. But they shined the entire walls of Jerusalem. With lights, right? And I'm looking across the valley, and I remember as long as I live, I had this vision. I remember that vision of Ezekiel, right? Where the, the glory leaves the temple, and in in, in Ezekiel they call it Ichabod. You remember this phrase? Ichabod means the glory has left. And it leaves and, and it's, it leaves the east side because the Jerusalem people, Israelites, were taken out of the east gate to go into Babylonia. This is the first Holocaust, by the way. Yeah, the Holocaust comes in 1942. This is the first Holocaust when they're taken into captivity. And the Bible says that the glory descends on the Mount of Olives. 586 years later, the glory of God leaves the Mount of Olives and goes back in the East Gate and goes in the temple. His name was Jesus. This procession starts at Bethpage, Bethany, which if you study this out, the text actually says he went from Bethany to Bethpage, and scholars now are like, oh, see, they got it wrong. The problem is the modern-day road not the Roman road, and the Roman road was exactly as it was said. And he makes this drop, comes into the city, because Jesus is king of kings. Here's the third point. Jesus is king forever. Not only is he the king of Israel, he's the king of kings. He's also king forever. Here's a one-liner for you. Next slide. Jesus is the king of an endless empire. An endless empire. Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at the text says. This is verse 14. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Y'all, eternal doesn't just mean forever. It means forever victorious as king. He is king for all time. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Listen, I don't know if it's right or not, but one of the most comforting things about being a follower of Jesus to me, you know what it is? We win. Is that not comforting to you as it is to me? We win. Y'all, I don't like losing. Okay? I will celebrate my wife winning last week, her team, in the basketball tournament. I'm not sure who won the guys, but I will celebrate her team that they won in the basketball tournament. I do not like losing. I've never liked losing. I hate to lose. This is why I often don't play games with church people, okay? <laughs> but listen, I don't know what it is about us. I don't, I seriously, I don't know what it is, but we often forget we are on a team that never, ever, 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 loses. We are a part of the body of Christ in whom Jesus is building and has promised to build her until he comes again and that which is committed to him is kept until that day blameless till the coming of our lord jesus hey craig merry christmas what'd you get me god i gave you victory hey happy birthday craig what'd you get me god i gave you victory hey hey happy easter craig what'd you get me god oh uh, this year i have a, a good dose of victory hey craig happy new year hey god what'd you get me well this year i got another 365 days of victory for you craig we never lose We never lose. We win. We are already winners. We are already more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the reason we don't lose is not because of us. It's because our king is the sovereign king of all kings forever and ever. Amen. And this is why we must trust him. I mean, you think about this for a moment. You think of Jesus as king, but then God became an infant. The king becomes an infant. That has all kinds of implications for our lives. Why? Because Matthew is contrasting King Jesus with King Herod. One chooses the way of trust. One chooses the way of fearful control. And our king from the outset chooses the way of trust. His father's intention to become a babe and live his life under the radar and start a public ministry and literally die on a cross triumphal entry and die on a cross and pay a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay and the father vindicated him from the dead raising him from the dead let me give you one more Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 during the reigns of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered you want to know the kingdom of God? How many of you are a part of the kingdom of God? Come on, just show me. Let me, let me. let me read about your kingdom real quick. It will crush all of these other kingdoms into nothingness. And it will stand forever, folks. When you, when you listen to God talk like this, this kingdom we're a part of crushes the other kingdoms to nothingness. Here's another way to say it. That's how God talks. That's God's direct quote, folks. That's God speaking. Let me give you another way to say it. You ready? Next slide. Every human reign eventually comes to an end, except for the man who was both God and man. His reign never ends. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. So this brings us to point number four. I want you to put your steel-toe boots on. Because the first three points are about Jesus, but the fourth point's about you. Jesus is the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the king for all time, but number four, but is he your king? Now, before you start thinking about salvation and pointing to his reign, let me give you something, okay? I'm going to read this for you, and then I want you to let it marinate a minute. I'm going to give you something to ponder. you ready? Next slide. The earthly struggle with Jesus is not with Jesus as Savior, but with Jesus as King. Yes. Everyone wants to be saved when they're dying. Few want to be ruled when they're living. That's right. That's right. Now, now hold right. on, just let that set a minute. When I say Jesus is your King, I'm not asking about your salvation. You say, well, Jesus is my king. Let's see if he is. Because you might actually be referring to he is your savior. I'm not asking, listen to me, is Jesus your savior? I'm asking, are you living this week as Jesus as your king? That's what I'm asking. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you some lists to help you determine whether he's your king or not. Because here's what we have a tendency to do as followers of Jesus. We tend to maximize the friendship with Jesus at the expense of the royalty of Jesus. Yep. We maximize friends. Now, don't get me wrong. I am Jesus's friend, and he's my best friend. He's my absolute best friend. But I must daily remind myself that before he was my friend, he's long been since king. Yeah. Let, me, let me say it this way. I'm friends with the king. Are you with me? But his kingship is established first. And that has to be in the forefront of my thoughts, folks. He's king of kings. Well, let me say it this way. You ready? I live better because he's my constantly faithful friend. But I sleep better because he's my constantly sovereign king. Are you with me? I have confidence, not just in his friendship, but in his kingship. Now, you might be thinking in the room, okay, well, how do I know if he's king? Okay, well, let me give you a few lists, the, the bad list first. You ready? He isn't your king if... And let, me, let me say this before you go there. There are only two options in your life as it relates to a king. It's either Jesus or it's you. Do you realize this? So there's not a third option. There's no gray area in kingship. You are king or Jesus is king, all right? That's the only way. You abdicate the throne of your heart and say, Jesus, I want you to be king or I want to be king. So here's the first thing. He isn't your king if, number one, next slide, you are addicted to being in control. He isn't your king if you're addicted to being in control. Let me say it this way. Jesus cannot, next slide, be your king if you must always be in control. If I always have to be in control, Jesus can't lead. You can have faith or you can have control, but you can't have both. So he isn't my king if I'm addicted to being in control. Here's number two. He isn't your king if, next slide, you consistently make decisions without consulting the king. So he isn't my king if I'm constantly making decisions without consulting the king. Let me say it this way, church. If you don't consult with Jesus over big decisions, you've turned your life into its own kingdom and you've enthroned yourself as its king. Even as a believer. Even as knowing Jesus as Savior. Every big decision that affects the kingdom and its citizens must be made in consultation with the king. No one can make a decision that's going to affect other kingdom citizens without asking the king. No one can do that in any kingdom. In any kingdom. So I want to ask you, what percentage of the time do you consult with your king over your decisions? And listen, I know I'm talking about big decisions, but what about the small decisions sometimes? Is it Chick-fil-A or Chipotle today? Now listen, I don't do that with God all the time. I know it's not Chick-fil-A today, right? Sunday. So the king, king already made that decision through Truett. Listen. There can come a time in your life where you say, God, today is it There might be be a future kingdom citizen at the restaurant. And so, Lord, do you want me today to go to Chipotle or do you want me to go to Chick-fil-A? Because there might be someone there that's a future kingdom citizen that you want me to talk to. We have to consult the king. Well, Craig, it's my life. No, it ain't. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. I mean, how much clearer does it get? Next slide. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit lives in you? You do not belong to yourself. You are not yours. No, it's not your life. No, it's not my life. We don't belong to ourselves. Why? God bought me with a price. God bought me the price. What was the price? Not the blood of the lamb, the blood of the king. The blood of the king paid for my life. So I consult the king for his decisions. Here's number three. He isn't your king if you allow division between you and other kingdom citizens. So as much as it relates to you, be at peace with all. So if I'm actively allowing division between me and other citizens, he's not my king. My king will push me to reconcile. As much as it depends on me. Right? My king's going to push for reconciliation. He, he gave me a ministry of reconciliation. So I'm going to seek reconciliation. Well, Craig, they're in a different political party than me. I don't care. Can I say something here? It's not even election season. I should have more in common with a Christian who is in a different political party than me than an unbeliever in the same political party as me. I'm going to say that again. I should have more in common with a Christian who is in the opposing political party from me than I should with an unbeliever who's in the same political party as me. Why? Because we're citizens of the kingdom. right. Right? We have to endeavor to keep unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Number four, he isn't your king if You behave as a communicator dispensing your own opinions more than as a messenger delivering the king's messages. Now I know this one's hard. I employ social media many like many of you do. But I just want to ask us a question. As it relates to our communication, whether verbal or viral, I want to ask you, what percentage of your post... What percentage of the time do you communicate are you delivering the king's messages? And what percentage of the time are you saying whatever you feel like saying? What percentage of the time do we deliver the king's messages as compared to what? say whatever we want to say? Listen, y'all, it just makes sense that he can't be your king if the majority of the time you talk, you say whatever you want to say whenever you want to say it. Are you with me, y'all? That can't be your king. It's as clear as day, right? He can be your savior, but actually not your king. So let's get to the sweet side of the coin. That's the hard side of the coin. How do you know your Jesus is your king? You know Jesus is your king, number one, if you seek first the kingdom. If you seek first the kingdom, Matthew 6.33, what did Jesus say? seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he, God, will give you everything you need. You know Jesus is your king, number two. If his kingdom, next slide, is more important than your castle. He said, don't store up your treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy. But store up your treasures in heaven. What? For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I have to have his kingdom more important than my castle. That's how I know the king is my king. Jesus is my king, number three. You know Jesus is your king if you esteem the king wherever you go. You honor the king in every context. I love this passage. I'm almost finished. Psalm 96 verse 3. I love it. Look what the text says. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. Leave that up there just a minute, Knox. Craig, I, I don't know how to lead people to Jesus. Oh, just tell everyone the amazing things he does. When you go downtown, tell him all the amazing things he does. Well, I don't know. I, I, don't, I really don't know how to lead people to Jesus. Oh, just go to your coworker and tell him the amazing things he did this last seven days. Well, I, I don't know how to like be a witness for him. Oh, you just go publish his deeds among the nations and tell everyone that will listen to you about the amazing things Jesus does. That's how you're a believer. That's how you're a witness. You just tell others about all that Jesus has done. Now I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you paused and you closed your eyes and your heart, opened your heart, and you meditated on the enthroned Christ who's seated at the right hand of the Father? Where you stopped yourself in the middle of your busy week and you re-centered and you fixed your gaze on the enthroned Christ. When was the last time that's actually scripture look at the next scripture colossians 3 said since you've been raised to new life with Christ set your sights on the realities of heaven think about things of heaven not the things of earth so i felt like this week now please team i'm going to ask the team to come up here and then that's usually the cue for people to go that way don't go that way okay don't don't move to the doors or your position yet okay we're going to do something as unique as a congregation We have the time. I'm going to ask the worship team to join us. I had this thought this week while I was preparing. I came across this uh, article in Bible, Crossway actually, called The ABCs of Jesus. And I loved it. I'm going to use it in DP Kids next time I teach. The ABCs of Jesus. And this person had just creatively created words that ultimately were adjectives to describe the Son of God. And I liked it. I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. And I was praying. And I just felt like the Lord asked me, well, Craig, what kind of king am I to you? What kind of king am I to you? Call it what it is, I don't know. Every time this time of the year, I... I the and Easter seasons does something for me. It awakens my wonder. It does it every year since I've been known Christ. It just I get so immersed in the details of the passion narratives and started writing out some ABCs of the king. And I went A to Z, besides using X, because gosh, that was really hard to describe Jesus as our king. And it turned out to be 25 juxtapositions. He's not the king that, because he is the king who. And so I, in my office, I imagine this moment this morning. And I imagine me standing before you with one job. The king is out in the lobby. And I have one job today. I have to introduce appropriately the king. I have to to give words that are appropriate to his entrance. And what I want to do is I'm going to read you this list. And as I read, there might be a moment where the Holy Spirit touches your heart. One of them might hit you really hard. One of them you might find affinity to. I want you in that moment just to respond. Now some of you might want to bow. Some of you might want to stand. Some of you might want to lift your hands. Some of you might want to wave. Some of you might want to shout. Some of you might want to kneel. Okay? Some of you may want to just move into prayer. Maybe Thanksgiving with your lips. But I want us as we read this just to put our gaze on Jesus. Now with no all due respect to Joseph R. Biden, when the president of the United States comes into a room, they play a song. It's called Hell to the Chief. In just a minute, we're going to go all hell to King Jesus. And we are going to blow the roof off this place with our worship. But I want you to respond to the king. However he asks you to respond. You ready? He is Jesus, not... An angry king. He's the perfectly amiable king. Nothing can make him hate you. Our Jesus is not the bossy king. He's never been anything but the most benevolent king. He's not the king, see, who constantly condemns you. Because he is the king who is constantly compassionate towards you. He's definitely not the defeated king because he's only ever been the victoriously decisive king. Jesus, who we're talking about today, is not the ephemerally temporal king. He is the eternally existing king. No one can kick him off of his throne. Our Jesus, he is not the king who is occasionally fickle. No, no, no. He is the king who is Forever faithful. He is not the king who glares down at you. Because he is the king who can never stop gazing at you. Our king Jesus is not the king who hurts you. I don't know what you've been told. Because he is the king who is always wanting to heal you. He is not the king in a world where leadership falls day after day. He's not caught by the tabloids of being indecent, he is the only king to be found completely, utterly incorruptible. He's not just any king, King Jesus. He's the king of Israel who the whole world has been waiting for. Listen to me. He's not the king who can be killed. He's the king who will kill every one of his enemies with the very breath of his mouth. He's not the King, our King Jesus, who will ever leave you. He is the King, if you look in the text, who refuses to stop loving you. He's not the King who cannot move mountains because He's the King whose middle name is miraculous. He is not the narcissistic king that's demanding your worship. He is the incomparably noteworthy King who alone deserves all of your worship. He is not the king, church, who's overly critical of you because he's the king who never stops obsessing over you. Listen, he's not the persecuting you king. He is the persecuted for you king. He is not a quantifiable king. He is what? The only quintessential king. He is not the king who is repulsed by your mess. He's the king who came to redeem your mess. He's not the king who shuns because he's too busy, because he's always the king who is seeking after you. I'll tell you this, I know this. He's not the king who will ever trick you because he's the king who longs to teach you. He's not an unfindable king because he is the only ubiquitous king. I tell you another thing I know about this king. He's not the king who viciously victimizes, but he most certainly is the king who is most vehemently vindicating you. Our King Jesus, he's not the weakling king, he is the war for you warrior kind of king. He's not the king who yells at you because he's too busy being the king who yearns for you. And he's not, Z was hard, y'all. Z was hard. He's not the king whose favorite thing is to zap you because he's the king who when you realize he's the one who is the for you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.